it seems to me very short-sighted to tie Microsoft as a whole to this one suite of programs. The message in what you're saying too is loyalty goes both ways. If you want your customers to be loyal to you, you should be loyal to them. Between online and in-store, I've always said we've got to be really aware of the difference between buying and shopping. From Orion X, this is The Marketing Podcast. Marketing has transformed in significant ways. More technology, more data, more social, more blending of arts and sciences, more integrated with every other function, and ultimately more critical to the organization. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett as they discuss news and happenings in the world of marketing, from the boardroom to customer programs. Hi, everybody. This is Marketing Podcast once more. This is Shaheen Khan with Doug Garnett. How are you, Doug? I'm doing well, Shaheen. All right. We have items and topics, so let's set it up. All right. So the first topic of the day you shocked me with when you uh, let me know when we talked on Friday that Microsoft is going to phase out the Office brand. And I went, I, I just, I, I mean, it just took my breath away that, I mean, Office, I've lived with Office for so many years. And instead, what they're going to do is everything becomes Microsoft 365, which apparently, you know, remember the old phase where we had, you turned 360, meaning you saw all around you. Apparently, Microsoft likes to see even more than all around you or something like that. <laughs> well, 365 days. <laughs> oh, oh, that's it. That's it. Not 360 degrees. <laughs> yeah. So in the spirit of giving them the benefit of the doubt, my thought was, okay, let's try to reverse engineer this. Yeah. It started out at Microsoft Office and those were CDs and before that even floppy drives. And it was a franchise that put Microsoft on the map in a big way beyond operating systems. Then when they started getting some competition from web-based platforms and portfolios such as Google Suite, they went to Office 365, and that was the beginning of their cloud services. And they changed that to Office 365. Mm -hmm. And now they're dropping Office in favor of 365, maybe moving it more towards mobile, iPads, phones everywhere kind of a thing. So my question was, if Office is the casualty here, whether or not you like it, you're abandoning the notion of, quote, office. You're saying that this is not just because you're sitting in an office. This is because you're going to need it everywhere. Well, is that true? Or is office a highly valuable thing that maybe you should have retained? I think it's a mistake for Microsoft. It's not life or death for them, but I don't think they should have done this. Yeah, because my take, if you look at it, you look at just simply the term Microsoft 365, is everything Microsoft does related to Office. I mean, they're a much bigger company than just the Office suite. And they sell business to business, not just for users who need these programs. It seems to me very short-sighted to tie Microsoft as a whole to this one suite of programs. Why would you do that? I spent a lot of time doing research for Nordic Track which a Nordic track was a specific product and it, it was something you got a good aerobic workout on. And then they tried to come out with strength training machines like the Nordic Flex. And I spent a lot of time talking with consumers who would not let them be a strength trainer because it's Nordic track. It's the Nordic track, Nordic Flex. You can't do that. That doesn't work. I think that when you bring your global total brand and you put it onto Microsoft Office, it's a big mistake. So you know they'll still do fine, but why do this? This just doesn't make sense. It's a bit reminiscent of new Coke, <laughs> Coke Classic. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of that. Not exactly because they changed the formula there and, yeah. and that was the thing. But then also when Google 
rebranded to Alphabet. Right. And years later, people still just call it Google, and it's really difficult to. And Facebook having now become Meta. Yeah. And it's still Facebook in many people's minds. It's hard to do these kinds of rebrandings when it's so well entrenched, and especially in their case, over decades. Actually, what it looks like to me is an internal thing. And it's one of the big mistakes in marketing is when you foist onto your customers something to help you organize internally. That internally, it makes sense that maybe they would rather be working on and put all their efforts into the cloud-based suite. That's fine. But why foist onto customers a need to change language and change all these things? Why not just do it, if you will? But do you think that like, if you're trying to target the younger crowd and new demographics, that they would not respond well to the word office? And they say, I'm not in an office. I just want a productivity suite. The snark in me says, oh, come on, it's Microsoft anyway. You know, (laughs) (laughs) they're not exactly known as the hipster company in the world. But you know what I think is uh, at some point, brand names transcend all that, right? It's office. We know what office is. It's Word, Mm -hmm. it's Excel, it's PowerPoint, and, you know, a few other things. But you know what? Outlook. Yeah, Outlook. Yeah, we know what it is. That's office. And regardless of age, when you say, hmm, I need to edit this in Microsoft Word, you don't really care about whether Office seems old and out of date or not. I think that that's kind of immaterial. And I know that there's a lot of brand people that might disagree with me because they make a lot of money making those changes. But mm. I just don't think people care that much. It's so funny. I mean, when you think about names in this day and age, who would pick Kellogg as the brand name for a line of cereal? You know, mm. none of us. Mm. But does that matter? No, it, it, they saw no. a, lot of, a lot of stuff under the catalog name. Well, that almost has achieved Kleenex status. Yes. It's just, mm-hmm. it's become a little bit genericized, sad to say, for the branding mm-hmm. legal team, but uh, it's kind of getting there. Now, the other thing that was nice in my head was that the word office, mm-hmm. it is an anchor. Yeah. So anchors are good because they give you stability, but they also can constrain you. And if you get rid of your anchor... Yeah, You better be careful because you're going to get some freedom, but you're also going to lose some stability. And if you don't take advantage of that freedom, then you're worse off than you were before. And then if you really think that you're going after the younger crowd, that younger crowd doesn't really do email Mm -hmm. and presentation Mm -hmm. and spreadsheets kind of anyway. Their entree into that suite is when they get a job and they have to do it as part of their job. Isn't isn't that the case? Well, somewhat, although, you know, my students all use the office suite, you know, because it's what you have to do to get through business school. You know, you have to edit things somewhere and Word's really good. Some of them use Google, but you know, mostly they use the Microsoft Office suite. I'll tell you the brand change that this reminds me of is when mm. Comcast invented Xfinity, yes. you know, and Xfinity came out and I had somebody in my class at the time who that we were talking about it. And I said, well, what do you think about this? And they said, oh, here's what's funny is they said, well, we're Comcast subscribers. And we heard that Xfinity has all these really good new advantages. So they called Comcast up and asked them to change them over to Xfinity. And the Comcast sales rep on the phone said, oh, you already have Xfinity. There's nothing to change. <laughs> and this, that's what this feels like. It feels like they're rearranging deck chairs at Microsoft, you know? Oh, they did not explain what that is at all. I remember that period. And I also thought that it yeah. was a brand new product, uh-huh. not a relabeling of the existing product. Right. That's all it was. It just yeah, relabeled, that's all it relabeled was, yeah. what they had. So they had this other name. And now, of course, every time I go to log on and check my account, I have to go to 
do I go to Comcast.com or Xfinity.net? I'm not sure which one, you know, and right. all of a sudden they made my life harder by inventing this sexy new name that right. I don't know. I mean, right. maybe there's some sort of grand <laughs> scheme in which it all makes sense. But as somebody who gets to be a curmudgeon from time to time, it makes me a little curmudgeonly. Yes. Yes. So moving on, we have a rapid succession of three topics now. Yep. You want to take us through those? Sure. Well, at least I'll, I'll kick us off. So Kroger and Albertsons are merging. And in reality, it looks like Kroger is buying Albertsons. The uh, Kroger CEO is going to manage the whole thing. So Kroger and Albertsons are merging. I don't know enough about their detailed business to be able to offer a lot of conclusive things on this. But it really raises a question for me about how valuable really are these consolidations in B2C world? And I admit, I start with skepticism. The topic being the consolidation in B2C as a more generic umbrella topic. Yeah. When you look at maps and you look at store locations, and these are physical Mm -hmm. businesses with some kind of a digital augmentation in some fashion, it looked complementary. It looked like, yeah, we got this part of the country and you guys got that part of a country. And then when we add them up together, there's not a whole lot of overlap. So from that standpoint, we get more of a national coverage and arguably we have more heft to go compete against the Walmarts and Amazons and targets of the world mm-hmm. who have that kind of footprint. So from that standpoint, it seems to make sense. But then I was trying to, again, in the spirit of the last conversation, I was trying to go one layer deeper and see what I can reverse engineer under what conditions it might be good. So one of my own personal experiences is that sometimes you want to do things that just require a magnitude of dollars. Mm-hmm. And if you are in a low margin business, which retail generally is, and if you can't improve your margin, you have to improve the size of the company to get the minimum amount of dollars you need to get stuff done. Right. And mm-hmm. the example that came to my mind was like a loyalty program, which of course these guys all have had for a couple of few decades now. I mean, Safeway had their loyalty program before there was an Amazon, you know, way back with your phone number in and that sort of a thing. But I can imagine that maybe there is some kind of a digital augmentation that you want to do that just requires more heft. And once you do it, you can do it across the board so you don't have to do too much customization for different businesses. And that gives you that leeway. So that was my way of rationalizing these things. Well, I think you're absolutely right that there are those times when you need simply more profit from which to do things, you know, that you right, need right. more profit to be able to siphon off some of that profit to do project X or whatever that is. I think where I keep coming back to, though, is this fundamental question of, is this going to build any competitive advantage? And you know what? I really don't hear people ask that question. So when something like this comes out, instead of seeing any intelligent discussion that just simply ponders, is this competitively good? Does this give them an advantage of this type or that type? I tend to see a lot of stuff about cutting administrative costs. I agree with you. The footprint is better, especially through the West. The Mountain West is far better covered by Albertsons than by Kroger and you know things like that. But to what degree is this seriously a competitive advantage? And to what degree is it merely a financial move to make investors happy because we just double profit? <laughs> well, I think, sure, there could be that. But I also think that in businesses where you cannot move the margin, mm-hmm. the only way to increase profit is to increase revenue. And one way to increase revenue is to expand your footprint. And one way to accelerate that is to acquire someone who already has the footprint. Mm -hmm. And that's a very valid way of growth in my mind. 
provided that what you're doing with that profit is going to enable you to compete with the players that are more global. Right. And maybe that's the path. Is there for something like this, though, a danger that they get to do this once? I mean, because how far can Kroger's take it to expand their footprint? You know, but looking at the map, this gives them pretty good national coverage. The only place I could see them going would be acquire, say, a Dollar General, because Dollar General stores are the general store through like Western Kansas. There's one in every town and things like that. Right. So right. they could go, you know, but otherwise, in terms of a footprint, I think there's a limit to how far you can go using footprint. For well, that. you go international after that. Yeah. You know, and in fact, we have examples of that as well with some of the multinational even retail grocery chains, not just retail. So that's probably where you have to go. Or you expand into adjacent markets like Walmart and Target have done, getting into food. And you were telling me when we did a pre-call on Friday that Walmart and Target are pretty big grocery stores and probably billed as number one. Walmart is the biggest grocery store in terms of grocery volume. Target isn't as big. They're smaller than either of Albertsons or Kroger's and Amazon is smaller than either of those. Hmm. We talk about grocery as a monolithic market, but it's got very clear bifurcations because what groceries do you buy off Amazon? Well, you don't buy apples and you don't buy anything that needs to be refrigerated. Right. You know, you can buy it at Whole Foods, but you don't go to Amazon and order a lot of perishables. You know, you have to deal with that. So Amazon, right. its grocery business supplies a certain segment or type. But it's not thorough in the way that our Kroger outlet here, which is Fred Myers, is. Okay, so this was not a rapid succession. <laughs> That's not doing too rapid, but we're going. Let's do this next one. Yeah. All right. So the next one is you sent me a note from, I believe he's a friend of yours, and he had gone to Roadrunner Sports. People do still visit stores, if anybody's wondering. But what's very funny about his experience is he went to Roadrunner Sports because he wanted to simply pick up replacement shoes for his wife. <laughs> and they had a heck of a time because apparently the salesperson is very well trained in exactly how Roadrunner wants people to work. And too well trained. <laughs> too well trained. And they and they took him down the line of, oh, I can't sell those to you because I've got to see if we can refit you. And then, you know, we need to video your wife walking and see if those are the right shoes for her and started doing the whole in-store experience that they might do as a full sale. And it was quite frustrating for this gentleman and his wife. And in the in the end, he asks to speak to the manager, and the manager brings out the shoes and sells them to him, which is a funny story. But you and I were talking about it. And what struck me is between online and in-store, I've always said we've got to be really aware of the difference between buying and shopping. And I think this is a great example of this guy went into an in-store for a buying experience, which is that's all he wanted to do. Just sell me these shoes. And the store guy wanted to force on him a shopping experience. Now, at the right time, shopping is brilliant. At the wrong time, as a customer, man, it pisses me off. So, uh, and that's yeah. what yeah. happened here. So, it's, you know, buying and shopping are important. I mean, for example, I do always say Amazon is a great place to buy stuff. I mm. find it a very difficult place to shop. I see. To just do comparison and learn and all that. Yeah. yeah comparison and learn mm. and sort things out. I mean, when I comparison shop, I want to lift the thing up. I want to feel how heavy it is and flex and, you know, those kinds of things. But in this case, the sales rep, in my mind, was not so well-trained because, I mean, too well-trained in one aspect, but not in a bigger picture to just recognize the situation. Yeah. And was insistent on 
well, what if it shows something? And, you know, maybe you don't, you know, maybe you don't know. And he was like, just like not letting go. And I kind of summed it up with the upsell versus the quick sell. You know, is that effort really worth it yeah. if it's going to lead into an upsell and you sell it more expensive shoe or you put some inserts and other things that you might sell versus just conclude the sale and go to the next customer where your efforts might actually pay off better? Well, and I think if we think about it in kind of in terms of satisfaction and repurchase, that it could be that for somebody who doesn't know what kind of shoe they're after, it's a brilliant thing because it gets them fixed on one shoe and then they feel committed to it and they'll come back and buy it again and again and again. Yeah. So, you know, but I agree with you. It's a sales training problem. I mean, who told this person that you have to do this process with everybody who walks in the door? Whoever said that? No, that's not a good thing. Right. So the other message is that if you want to, differentiate yourself from an online sell, this is not the way to do it. <laughs> no, well, not with an absolute. You have to recognize that people may mostly buy online and mostly shop in store, but mostly is a big qualifier. And if anybody right comes into your store to buy, let them buy, you know? Right. Yeah. Close the deal. <laughs> All right. Next item. Next item, Beyond Meats. You know, we've been uh, told that we should become vegetarians. No, I mean, maybe we should give up all meat for uh, years and years and years. And so I was intrigued last week when I saw a headline that Beyond Meat is having a tough time. Now, they've got some serious personal problems with personnel. People can go look that up on their own. We're not going to talk about that. But the question is, they're having to do layoffs in their meat factories and if we're making Beyond Meat. And the other thing I got out of these articles is that their fast food partnerships aren't working. They're making some comments about inflation, which sure seemed to me the usual excuse making. But most interesting, there's something also about struggling to ramp up production, which I'm not quite sure. Now, I wouldn't take this as broadly if I didn't also find that Impossible Foods is also doing layoffs and has been doing some struggles. So it kind of just struck me for a quick one for us. It's like, huh, what's going on here? What is going on here? Because on the face of it, you would think alternatives to meat, plant-based, synthetic, you can regulate mm -hmm. all the nutrition aspect of it. There is a climate benefit that you might feel good about while buying. And some of them are okay. The Impossible Burgers are, to me, a little salty, but pretty good. And Beyond Meat has a different flavor and also acceptable. Mm -hmm. uh, not quite meat yet. I think they got close, but not close enough mm -hmm. to unlock the next level of the market. But you'd expect them to be able to grow into this market and be doing well. So why are they not doing well? So is this because their growth ambitions were unrealistic, which can very well happen when investors push you to grow beyond what the market allows, and then you get disappointed? Or is it because they didn't manage it right or all of the above? It's hard to tell. I'm particularly intrigued about the fast food partnership question. If mm. fast food partnerships aren't paying out, I'm not quite sure what that tells us. And I think that, you know, if I was in the operation there, I would be off digging into the fast food partnership question more about mm. the fast food customers. You know, does it turn out that the fast food customers are reflecting a part of the market that just isn't that interested in beyond? Exactly. That's a really good point. Is there an indication that the demand isn't what you expected it to be? Yep. Or people were curious, but now that they have satisfied their curiosity, they're going right back to the, yeah. you know what they know and love, which is real meat, right? Mm -hmm. My guess is there's some stuff going on there. I've always felt like a lot of the expectations that were shouted at the market were a little out, a little out of control for these kind of meat substitutes that they'll probably settle in at some point of like a 20 or 25% market 
and then not grow beyond that. I mean, that's what I expect. I, when Groupon came out and everybody in the world said, the whole world's going to go to couponing, my retail instincts went, are you guys crazy? It doesn't no, happen. Right. People who really value coupons are a minority of the market and an important minority. But, you know, at the time, my feeling was couponing, uh, intense couponing was about a 10% of the market. So coupon interested might be 20%. Groupon mm -hmm. might be able to get 20, maybe 25% of people to really use them regularly. Over time, they fell from their perch of this is the entire future of shopping back into couponing. Yeah, I think also just changing these kinds of behavioral markets is something that's going to take a long time. It's maybe a multiple generations. Yeah. yeah, we have a lot, you know, just a lot of taste and connections and emotional parts of this that are very different and a lot yeah. harder to change than you think so. Our final topic for today. Final. That is what you raised. <laughs> yeah. So I want to know, how brand loyal are you, Shaheen? Oh, no. The topic is this, brand loyalty versus brand love. You know, we get in marketing, there's a lot of like mythology that's built up around the idea of brands and how big of an impact a brand can be on a business. And, you know, brands are critical. But there's a lot of this mythology that goes into really strange areas. And uh, there was a discussion on Twitter in the last week or two that was talking about this. There was actually a good article that came out. It talked a bit about it. I mean, some guys' reflections on this reality. Now, I, in this world, always go back to Byron Sharp and how brands grow and the observation that consumers are brand polygamous. <laughs> Meaning, you know, whoever buys from you is buying from the other guys too. It doesn't mean that they aren't going to give you the bulk of their sales or uh, their purchases. It doesn't mean you aren't going to get great money out of them. But if you want people to be fully dedicated to your brand, then you need to get into another business. Yes. So I think maybe some definitions would help. Okay. So what is loyalty? What is love? And what I propose then, I haven't done research on this, so I don't know whether this is already done 10 million times or not. But to me, loyalty is willingness to stay with a brand despite some change. Mm -hmm. Now, that change could be that you go to the store and they're out. Do you like come back the next day to buy it or do you just get the alternative on the shelf and move on? It could be price. It could be the change in formulation and the specifications of the product. It could be the change in packaging. Yeah, there is even novelty seeking that you may buy Coke all the time. But every now and then you go, God, I wonder... I wonder what that would taste like. And sometime you find it on sale and you run into it and you buy it. Right. Um, that's, right, right it's right. not even that. It's not even a tremendously logical thing on people's parts because we're just people. That's right. And clearly a packaging shift, if it's just cosmetic, that would be that example. So now the question is, as a brand marketeer, what can you do to raise the resistance to go elsewhere because you just changed something? Now, my personal experience is I usually leave a brand because they change their formulation. Like back to the shoes, I go by the next rev of the shoe and it's a little bit longer, it's a little bit narrower and it doesn't fit anymore. I mean, let me jump in and go back to something you said earlier, which is this question, does loyalty mean that a consumer or a customer, because it's really business to business as well, is going to make a choice to stick with your product despite pain? And the question is how much pain and things like that. Well, a change is a proxy for some kind of a pain, yeah, some right? some kind of a pain. Yeah. And I go back to discussions I've had about trust with some people, and I once negotiated with a school district superintendent, and we were working on improving the music program, and these people I was with were like, well, we can't trust him. I'm like, no, no, actually, I think we can absolutely trust him. I think he wants this to happen, but here's the scoop. He's not going to risk his career for it. 
And I think we have to take that then and think about it in terms of people buying our products. You know, is somebody going to, what pain will they put up to make sure they buy a Coke when your store happens to be out of Coca-Cola or out of the Coke Zero or out of whichever you know version of Coke they want? Not many people are really going to get in the car and drive to someplace else to find it. There are a few things we'll do that with when we have a product that we really you know, like. In, in the pre-show when we talked, you were talking about how, I mean, it still all comes down to the product. So even though the brand is on a product, and what I tell people is people don't buy brands, they buy products that have brands. And right. it helps direct them to it and helps them pay more to it. Or, you know, there's a lot of values the brand gives, but we're still buying a product. So how much different is Coke and Pepsi? And okay, you guys can write all the angry notes in our Twitter feed, but how much different really are Coke and Pepsi? And of course I drink Coke all the more often than I drink Pepsi. What can I say? <laughs> but you know, kind of what's that pain point? And, and it's yeah. like, well, you know, we can't foist onto customers an obligation to buy our product despite pain. Well, I think that's the question. For what kind of a product even is it possible? Mm-hmm to raise that resistance to move to another brand. There's that saying, every purchase is an identity crisis. <laughs> now, if you're buying something that you are associating with your own identity, then sure, that mm-hmm. actually is eligible mm-hmm. to be a situation where you could build brand loyalty and brand love even, because it is your identity. And you can see that sometimes in cars or clothing or things that are very personal to people, your wallet, Mm -hmm. you know, things that are highly personal. And you just like, I just like this kind of a thing, right? But even then, the options are not just one. Usually the options are a limited set that are all acceptable to you. So the answer is that not really. It's not an identity crisis like that. It also depends highly about the product. Mm -hmm. I don't think it is an identity crisis. And I think that if you believe it is, you're setting yourself up for problems because you buy that car and it's perfect for you right now and you just love it right now. But in four years, life's changed. You know, we're talking, it's that you're kind of into fads at that point or fashion and things move in and out of fashion so fast that if we're trying to depend on people to hold reliable through despite fashion changes, it's tricky. I mean, I suppose there may be brands like a Louis Vuitton that people will, you know, buy time after time. And I mean, I've certainly have bought a lot of things, but very often it's because the product really works. I actually have a brand of screws that I buy to use in the shop when I'm building things because they work really well. I've been disappointed lately because I've bought some of those screws at Home Depot and found out they didn't work as well. They seem to have some change in them. And all of a sudden, I'm not really that loyal to the brand. I want what the brand was providing me before. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's loyalty versus meeting the required spec. And sometimes the spec is very stringent spec. You have to be within this specifications or no deal, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. sometimes the spec are more loosely defined. Well, or it is sometimes versus kind of the devil you know versus the devil you don't know mm-hmm. because you're not familiar with this brand and you don't know really what might happen. You know, if that's the case, what's the price of loyalty? What's the price of friendship? And, you know, there's another saying that says the price of friendship is about 10%. I think the reality is customers cannot be expected to spend very much for, you know, for loyalty. Just based to on stay loyalty. with you. That's right. Yes. I mean, yes. I was thinking briefly about the days of IBM when IBM was so strong in, in data centers and thinking, okay, so is that loyalty or is that that the data center 
boss gets a value from continuing to buy more IBM. And I suspect if we look at it, it's because they're getting a specific value from buying IBM. And if the IBM violated that or you know, was no longer delivering that value, they'd probably change pretty quickly. You know, and that value, by the way, was a career value, I think, too. You know, the value they got by buying at IBM wasn't simply the computer continued to work the way it did, but it was a career value of, oh, you're buying an IBM. What a smart choice. Well, this raises two other points in my mind. There are things like services, this IBM example, the services were reputed to be impeccable, that you stayed with IBM because they took care of you. Mm -hmm. That was a good way to build loyalty. The other thing that I see, and this is very true in software, is user interface. The user interface is a very sticky thing. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you get, quote, religious wars in software land because the knob isn't quite where you want it to be. It's a bit of a first world problem, perhaps, but hey, you know, I'm kind of got used to it. The same thing is true in cars. So I think in those cases, yes, you should try to build loyalty because of it. Well, interestingly, Apple has done brilliantly on that with their products. But here's what's interesting is, I mean, I started my career building a network of Apple IIEs. I've worked in almost every computer I've ever owned as an Apple with exception of maybe three or four different systems. But reality is my loyalty isn't to Apple, but to the way the products work. You know, when I built in my company dependent on Final Cut Pro, we started doing all of our editing in-house. It was a tremendous way to do it. We loved Final Cut Pro up through Final Cut Pro 7. Then they released Final Cut Pro X and it was a complete disaster. And as experts in editing, I need software to work a certain way. And Apple decided to redo it completely and make it work more like iMovie, which drives those of us who need specific edit things to happen specifically crazy. And they did Final Cut Pro X, and we fired the software within three months and shifted over to Adobe Premiere. Despite having bought so much Apple stuff, and in fact, when I sent a letter to Tim Cook that said, what the hell were you thinking? And he had somebody call me back that basically their message was, yeah, but will you still buy Apple equipment? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I will still buy Apple equipment. Actually, yeah. I'm not going back to Final Cut. But the message in what you're saying, too, is loyalty goes both ways. Mm-hmm. If you want your customers to be loyal to you, you should be loyal to them, too. Absolutely. And if you change the formulation and if you mess with the product and if you sold them something that they love and now you feel obligated to enhance it in ways that they didn't ask, you're adding value where none was requested or needed, well, then get ready to lose some because it was you who was not loyal to them. As we move towards close, can I offer a moment of brand zen, if you will? <laughs> Let's do that. The single best branded and brand maintained product in history is the banana. It's always <laughs> yellow, always curved, comes in bunches. And there's no brand manager back there dinking with it or no new CMO who decides they have to reshape the banana or all those things. I mean, consistency is really important to people. It's a value (laughs) for people. Obviously not consistency to the point that your product gets out of date, but consistency in every time I use that product, I get what I expect. So this reminds me of another saying, the only value you can add to a banana is to bruise it. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe on that note, we can conclude this episode. Sounds like a good idea. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We appreciate it. And please tweet, share, engage, do all the things that marketing people do. And until next time. Thank you, Tim. All right. Thank you. 
That's it for this episode of The Marketing Podcast. Every episode is posted on orionx.net and shared on social media. Use the comments section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Marketing Podcast is a production of Orion X. Thank you for listening.